1, verses 1, 6, and 17, but really we'll find ourselves in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, which is found on page 398 in your pew Bible. Last week we considered and we studied Abraham. We studied Abraham because his name is one of the two names that Matthew really highlights at the beginning of the gospel from Israel's past. We also considered Abraham because as the sermon illustrated, when Mary came up with that first Christmas song of all Christmas songs while she talked about God, she also mentioned one other person, Abraham. And so the gospel writers want us to remember certain things about the Old Testament story before we begin to read the New Testament. So we had good reason to look at Genesis 15 and, and see some of Abraham's story, how God came to Abraham and made a promise that his fatherless man would have a great multitude come from him, from his direct line. And then we remember how God made a covenant with Abraham where Abraham split the animals and created a walkway through, and God walked through the middle of those animals through his lighted presence, telling Abraham essentially, even if I die and have to make these, even if I have to die to make these promises happen, I will do so. I am a God of my word. I'm going to give you a promised land, even if it's at the cost of my own blood. So Matthew wanted us to remember Abraham. But Matthew also wants us to remember King David at the start of his gospel. Matthew's gospel at the onset is going to emphasize that Christ's coming is the start of an entirely new kingdom, an entirely new regime that, unlike one anybody suspected, Christ's event is much like a beachhead moment in Normandy. Darkness, struggle, sadness had gone on far too long for the people of God. And our God in Christ Jesus begins in this gospel, connecting himself to the fabric of history to show that he's providing an everlasting hope which answers all the questions of the Old Testament. So Matthew is saying, you need to understand a little bit more about David or you won't be able to fully understand Jesus. So with that in the back of our minds, appreciating the fact that Matthew desire for us to understand Jesus' links to Abraham, to David. Let us begin reading first, as I said, a few short verses in Matthew, but then the main portion of our reading will come from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, where we will see a King David along with a prophet of Israel, Nathan, and God entering into a discussion that they were having. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Skipping to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew verse 17. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, reading in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, 
Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Have I, have I not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day? I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have, become, I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Let us pray. Father God, here we stand before your word, an incredible part of Scripture. So we just ask that you bless us with a deeper understanding of this text this morning. We ask this for the glory of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I remember reading about an instance during the Civil War where a general recalled surveying the battlefield of this battle that was very much in doubt. It seemed to this general that he was going to lose, that they were not going to be able to win a victory. But then this idea came over him and it was an idea that he sent the middle regiments up to attack and isolate them in the front so that all the enemy's fire could focus in upon them. And then as they were distracted with this one regiment, he sent, he could surround the enemy and get on their flanks and provide the necessary distraction to entrap the enemy forces. The plan ended up working exactly as the general wanted. However, do you know what the general didn't say when he gave those orders to these those men who bravely set out? He didn't explain to them each and every detail. He didn't explain to those who were at the center regiment that most of them would end up dying because of this order. He didn't explain to the regiments on the edges they would only find success through their fallen brothers in arms. No, the general just said charge. And the brave soldiers who fought for him for the cause of restoring the Union listened. 
not knowing how it was all going to play out, not knowing how things would unfold. They just placed their trust in this man who was leading them. And to do something like that takes great faith in any individual to do it well. When we begin this passage today, King David is leading a nation, Israel, that is united at this point. It has reached the apex of its Old Testament history. The nation is still united in 12 tribes that hasn't descended into civil war, which will later. David is king, and he's just conquered this city, Jerusalem. And this new city in Jerusalem that they've conquered, it becomes their capital. And so this chapter begins with King David contemplating what happens next after all this success. And we'll see in this passage two things take place. First, David is going to come up with a great plan of what God should do. But then God's going to make clear to David that David's plan is not his plan. So we begin in verse 1 of this chapter, learning that King David has just built for himself a new house, a new palace, and David realizes, hey, I've got this comfortable place as a human king. But the Ark of the Covenant, it's in a tent. So David resolves to build a temple house for Yahweh, and he informs the prophet Nathan of his intentions. And at first, Nathan commends the idea. It sounds like a great one. David's fortunes had expanded along with Israel's. He had this house with glorious cedar paneling, shiplap, which shows that the HGTV couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines, that they're just following a biblical principle that shiplap and wood on the walls is a good thing. David would have been a fan of that show. You don't know what I'm talking about? That's okay. Back on point. In the midst of this beautiful house with this aromatic cedar, David, and the palace is rightly wants to give back a portion to God. He wants to give back a portion of loving worship to his God. See, God's tabernacle was found in a hundreds and hundreds of year old tent. Imagine how we just consider the fact that here we are in a building quite old by church standards in the United States. And while it's holding up in good repair, there are places with cracks, and there are places with that still show a little bit of age. I can't imagine an even older tent that had been outside to the elements, what it might have looked like. So David says, listen, God, I, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And Nathan does exactly what we would do if maybe Bill Gates came into here today and said, hey, I want to give millions and millions of dollars to making a remodeling this church, we'd say, oh, this is a great idea. We'd say, yes, this is a great plan. So God, but while Nathan and David have come up with a great plan, God is going to make clear that he has a totally different idea. In high school, I was a lackluster student. I refused to put the work in that I needed to do in order to get exceptional grades. And so I began my college life at Marymount College in Los Angeles. But when I became a believer early in college, one of the things that really changed for me was my dedication to schoolwork. And so as I all of a sudden watched my GPA get better, I decided, hey, well, now I can maybe transfer to a college that I couldn't get into right away after high school. And so I sat down one weekend and I started applying to colleges. And the two leaders in the clubhouse 
where the University of Southern California, which I have no idea why they didn't fire their football coach after a five to seven season, or Villanova, because my sister went to Villanova and I had been to the campus, it's a beautiful area. Turns out I'd like to live in that area. So they were the two front runners. I knew as those two applications went out, if I got accepted into either of those schools, that was going to be the decision. It was going to be between Philadelphia and Villanova or Los Angeles and USC. It ended up being about six schools I applied to. The last one I applied to was this little school in Spokane called Gonzaga University. I had been to Spokane once, but it was way down the list. And so the applications came back, and I was fortunately accepted into all of them. I had been accepted in the USC. I had been accepted in the Villanova. And so it was obvious I was going to have to make a decision between the two. But as I said, I was this new believer, and I was reading this book called The Call by Oz Guinness, where the book's central premise was, whatever you decide to do in this life, whatever decisions you make, do them with the glory of God in mind. So to boil down this book, the idea was to prayerfully let God's plans be our guide. God will make his plan clear for us. And so, great, the book was going to help me pick between Villanova and USC. But there was this pesky dean who kept calling me. He was calling me from the last choice, Gonzaga. Day in and day out, this dean from Gonzaga University would call me. And our first conversation seemed pleasant enough, but it had come about eight days in a row where he said, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to convince you to come here? And so eventually, I put my hands up to God and said, all right. All right, I understand, Lord. This is where you want me to go. I, I turned down the opportunity to go to Villanova. I turned down the opportunity to go to USC because I, God in that moment had graced me with making it clear in my life where he wanted me to go. That God had another plan. One that I didn't want to go with. And I'm so thankful for that because while it wasn't clear to my young and restless heart, I wouldn't have the wife I have today. I wouldn't have the four daughters that I have today. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for God's plan superseding my own. And so, as we look at these first few verses of chapter Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want to impress upon us this morning that we'll often have great plans for where our life should go. We'll have great reasons, for instance, of why we want to do this or why we want to do that in our lives. But we have to remember that we're not God. We're not the God of this world that we live in. Ways both big and small, God's going to adjust what we think is next for us to do in our lives. It was a good plan by David. It was a nice idea, but like so many of man's ideas, God had something else in his work, else in the works at this moment. And we begin to see this play out in God's promises starting in verses 4 and 5. And this is the second point of the two-point sermon. Because God goes to the prophet Nahum and says, I don't want David to build a temple. And he gives two reasons why. The first reason is that God has never asked for it. God wanted his people to know, the people that he loved, to know that he was right there alongside of them at this point in history. It's hard to complain about your circumstances as a Jew when you could see the drab tent that God was in, God's presence was inside of the same God who created the heavens. Who created the universe. And it's 
this beautiful illustration that God wants to provide, doesn't this explain so much about why Jesus comes the way he does at Christmas? As this baby in the manger, born to a poor family. We have a God who desires to experience what the most downtrodden and the least of his people experience. We have a God who says, I'm alright with being poor for now because so many of my people are poor. And a God who says, I'm alright with suffering for now because so many of my people are also suffering. So God in saying, no, his first coming, David, there is still much to do before I live in a temple of my choosing. But there is also a second reason God says no. And he begins explaining to David in verse 8. God wants David to remember how David's life began as a simple shepherd who was watching over sheep in the field. David was already recognized as this great rags to riches story. He already had quite a lot of acclaim. And so God is making clear to David, you're not going to be the one who built the temple for me because I'm the God who has been working in your life through grace. I'm not going to, I'm going to continue to do that in order that it's clear to everyone who looks at you that it's not what you did, David, that gave you so many blessings from me. No, it was just given to you freely because I'm a gracious God. God did not want to give David the work of building the temple because then those who followed David would be tempted to credit David's own works with the many blessings he would receive rather than God's mercy. So God wanted us to remember that he was gracious to David, not because David deserved it, but that's just because that's just the type of God he is. He's a God who is gracious. Then God, through Nathan, begins to give David his plan. God says, I'll build you a house at the end of verse 11. And obviously God was not talking about remodeling the shiflap, shiflap cedar panel house. He's talking about building David a royal line. And then God says, even when you die, David, I still will not stop this blessing for you. Look at verse 13. Look at how God talks about this son, David, who he will build a true house for in his name. This house, established by David's son, will inaugurate the blessing of God upon David's line forever. Which, to the Jew at this time, seemed to be that David's son, Solomon, fit all these categories. I mean, Solomon was the son who built the original temple, right? It's just called the it is called Solomon's Temple, moving the ark out of a dingy tent into his great wonder of the ancient world. So David believed the fullness of this promise would be fulfilled roughly right after he died, mostly, or at least believed it was possible. And David began making preparations for this temple during the remainder of his life. And God helped him to do that. God even gave instructions to Solomon on how to build the temple. But when that first temple, and maybe, let me explain it this way. When that first temple was built, there was a temptation by a great many Jews to say, great, this is the fulfillment of that promise. This is the central climax of Israeli history. This is the crowning achievement. See, there's two ways you can read in the Hebrew the word son in this text. First, the first way is that sons could have been read in the sense of a bloodline. That David 
someone would always be related to you as king as long as people live. There would always be someone in your bloodline who would take over from the previous king. Or the son could emphasize a single person. One person always living in eternity. The Jews of Solomon's day believed in mass the bloodline idea. That there would always be a descendant of David to replace the previous ruler, and this would go on forever. The idea actually becomes a part of their assurance as a nation. And as later prophets such as Jeremiah tell the people of Judah that the city of Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, they believe they're Benedict Arnold. They believe that Jeremiah is faithless. They believe that he doesn't know what he's talking about. That don't you know Jeremiah, 2 Samuel chapter 7, Jeremiah? They would have seen them as traitors, the later prophets. All because they misunderstood God's greater plan to this promise. So many got what God meant in 2 Samuel 7 wrong. When Solomon's temple came crushing, crashing down 400 years after it was established in 586 BC, it was a dark time in Jewish history. It was hard for most to believe in God anymore. For those who believed they knew God's plans better than he did, God seemed faithless. The majority fell away, and when the Jews were carried off into Babylon, most would not even bother to come back a few decades later to the former capital of Jerusalem. They just went on living in Babylon. What was the point of rebuilding Jerusalem? There must be no God, or there must be no true God, Yahweh. Only a faithful remnant would carry on in the faith. But the great irony is all they had to do was return to the Word of God and read verses 14 to 16 of this chapter and realize they have the wrong assumptions. According to verse 14, whoever this Davidic son was going to be was going to be flogged. But the problem was, Solomon was never flogged. And not one of the other Old Testament kings of Judah was ever flogged or punished with the full brunt of the rod of men. So where in history is this son? The answer, of course, is that their assumptions were not God's plans. Certainly, if the king was to face such a punishment as described in these verses, he would have appeared to have lost all power. What king can still be esteemed as a king and receive a criminal's punishment and flogging? What king shall be loved as a king by God? but obviously surrendered himself to be judged under the rod of men. There was no one in the entire Old Testament who fulfills this prophecy. And in this reality, when we begin to read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, the Gospel writer, says, Hey, wait a minute. This is why I'm emphasizing David. This is the promised son. This is why when David's book begins with the first Four words in the Greek, what did they translate? The book of Genesis, Jesus Christ, is showing us that we have in Jesus this genesis of a new king, this king, this son who will fulfill every hope, relieve every tension, and honor every promise God had already made in Scripture, including the promises many believe God had forgotten to date. As we saw last week in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham, even if God had to be ripped apart like an animal, he would still honor his promises. And even as, and as we look at this text today, if this true, true son of God needed to be flogged 
and then struck down by the rod of men in judgment, he's still going to be the eternal son loved by God. If we only learn one thing today, let it be this. God has a plan, and it's not ours. And at times, we're going to suspect that we have a better idea. We won't. We're just not being faithfully patient for it all to work out as he has ordained it to be. God has all eternity worked out in a way that's amazing. It's going to lead us to eternal joy, delight, praise, and worship. Yes, God does things that we don't often suspect, and even at times we have to endure suffering when God doesn't live up to our expectations. But it's a beautiful plan, and we know it's a beautiful plan because we have seen who Jesus is. We've recognized what Jesus points forward to, and we have seen what Jesus has done in order to keep each and every promise of God. There is ultimate blessing in what God has designed for us. And there is also temporary heartaches and curveballs along the way. And all the while, what he asks for, of us is for us to have faith in him. Faith in him as our general, in one sense, from the illustration earlier. To put our trust in his love, grace, and mercy, and to walk boldly. Even down paths, we're not always sure where they're going to take us. One final thing before we close the book on David and Abraham in regards to this genealogy of Matthew. The most well-known event of Abraham's life was when he took his son Isaac, the son he loved and was promised, of Mount Moriah at the command of God. See, God had asked Abraham to sacrifice his son to God, and Abraham obeyed God and began taking his son up the mountain. But before Abraham went up the mountain, he had servants with him which had done the journey with both Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham told his servants an amazing thing. He told them before he left for the mountain to be prepared for both him and Isaac to return down that mountain, to watch over their stuff because they both would be back. It's an amazing moment of faith in the life of Abraham because he had just been asked by God to offer Isaac on the mountain Moriah unto death. But Abraham shows that he believes God will still honor his promises about Isaac, even if he doesn't understand what God's plan is at that moment. Abraham seems to believe in that moment that even if God has to resurrect his son Isaac from death after Abraham strikes him down as an offering, God will do it. Of course, if you know the story of Genesis 22, you know that God stops Abraham on that day in the land of Salem. Abraham was not required to go through it. And as far as that region of Salem, it would be renamed by King David once he conquered it to Jeru, Salem. He would have the word Jeru in front of Salem because Jeru means foundation. And the word Salem means peace. This city, this new capital, was to be the foundation of peace for the entire world through the line of King David. And King David wanted everyone wanted everyone to know through his name that Jerusalem was a place where peace would be found. And Solomon, David's son, when he built the temple in Jerusalem, picked that same Mount Moriah as the spot for God's temple. But as important as Isaac and Solomon were in history, Isaac's blood cannot fulfill God's promises, so God did not require it from Abraham. And Solomon's temple would not be the place where the son of David eternally reigned. That wasn't part of God's plan either. 
Now the son of David who was flogged and struck down with the rod of men was not Solomon. And the son of Abraham who was ripped apart like an animal in order to fill all that God had promised was not Isaac. Rather the true son of Abraham and David was also the son of the Father most high who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the author of history. And in Jesus' plan, not ours, we find a hope that is eternal and glorious and never-ending. Our sight is limited. Our plans are fallible. Jesus, however, is the fulfillment of all of Scripture's promises. He was the Father's perfect plan. This Son of David, King Jesus, is our living and reigning Christmas hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray.